twice in December of last year, a senior Chinese military officer openly advocated unprovoked attacks on the U.S. Navy in the global commons. In the second of these outbursts, a rear admiral said he wanted to launch his Dongfeng 21D and Dongfeng 26 missiles to sink two aircraft carriers and kill, he said this openly, kill 10,000 Americans. This outburst does not represent official Chinese policy, but is nonetheless thought to represent thinking in the senior military ranks. And it came within weeks of the 40th anniversary of America's establishment of diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. So on the eve of that landmark, the Chinese military went on an rhetorical bender. China and the United States appeared destined to years, maybe decades, of a new Cold War, as analysts call it. Now, Chinese policymakers think that this conflict is existential. Americans, by and large, don't think so. This startling difference in perceptions is nothing new, because Americans and Chinese have viewed their relations in starkly different terms since the early 1970s. Nixon thought that his policy, which was to integrate Beijing into the international system, was good for China, was good for the United States, was good for the world. Chinese policymakers, however, thought it was inherently threatening, threatening because it could undermine China's communist system. Matter of fact, this difference in perceptions, we have to go back to the early 1950s to find a time when Americans and Chinese actually viewed their relations in the same terms when there was mutual hostility. Now, there are many different reasons for the viewpoints that have, from the Americans and the Chinese, but the inability to agree on the past suggests that relations in the future will be tense. So let's get started. What is America's greatest foreign policy failure? Arthur Waldron of the University of Pennsylvania thinks that it is America's post-1978 China policy. And indeed, if we go back to two centuries of American blunders, failures, and debacles, one in particular, our China policy, stands out. Now, there are two things that we have done with China. We have made mistakes, and we have acted under self-delusion. And under self-delusion, there are two things that we need to focus on. First of all, we Americans deluded ourselves about the arc of history, and we also deluded ourselves about China. On the arc of history, we in this country just thought there was great significance to our victory in the Cold War. We appeared to reach, we thought, not just an historical transition, but an endpoint. Francis Fukuyama, the historian, famously said that with the end of the Cold War, history had ended. Quote, he said, the evolution of human societies through different forms of government had culminated in modern liberal democracy and market-oriented capitalism, he wrote. Well, there was no place else for humanity to go. 
we had reached the endpoint of mankind's ideological evolution. In short, the victors of the 20th century not just wrote history, we abolished it. And as we abolished history, we assumed that China would become just like us. Of course, a little more populous, with better food, maybe worse wine. But China has not transitioned the way that we hoped it to. And by now, we should realize that there is no had to in history. With history, there is no arc. That's the first self-delusion. The second is we failed to understand China, and primarily because we saw China the way we wanted it to be. So instead of recognizing the inherently belligerent nature of communism, many, not all, but many policymakers just thought that, uh, that basically it was just another state. And what we did was we compounded our error about the way we looked at the Soviet Union and we projected that on China. By the middle of the 1970s or so, American policymakers looked at Moscow and thought it was just another state. And therefore, they concluded that much of the friction between Moscow and Washington was our fault. What we did was we went to great lengths to normalize and to rationalize the Soviet Union. So we took this mistake and we compounded it. What we did was we then, as I mentioned, looked at China in the same terms. So as a result, many people thought that the friction that we had with Beijing, starting with Mao Zedong, was in part because of the our perceptions. And we thought that things would get better if we just stopped frustrating Chinese leaders. As Winston Lord, who was Henry Kissinger's principal deputy in the early 1970s, he told Waldron in a private conversation that American policy had to be based on, quote unquote, necessary myths. Well, basing our policy on myths and a foundation of myths certainly had consequences. We are not where we want to be with China as we look back over those 40 years. Over those 40 years, in the first 10, Beijing spent a lot of time trying to convince us that they would liberalize, that they would open up their economy, they would democratize, they would become a normal great power. And then they spent the next 30 years dashing those hopes. And this means that American policymakers fundamentally underestimated the ruthlessness, the hostility, and the will to power of the Communist Party of China. Americans spent decades just trying to think that the Chinese government form of government did not matter. Well, of course it mattered. It mattered then, and it matters today. Today, almost all people in the United States who comment on Chinese policy believe that Xi Jinping, the current ruler in Beijing, is merely competing with us in a normal great power competition. He is, we are being told, just merely trying to bend the international system more to China's liking, that really what he's just trying to do is to adjust the international system. I believe that that predominant view misunderstands what's going on. Two reasons. First of all, we don't understand that China is communist. 
and that Xi Jinping calls himself a communist, and proudly so. And second of all, we believe that he accepts the current international system as legitimate. As for communism, I'm not in Xi Jinping's head. I don't know whether he really believes in the ultimate victory of the proletariat and the withering way of the state. But we can see that by word and deed, he certainly believes in the tenets of Maoism. And Maoist thought, of course, is not consistent with the current international system. That international system is based upon the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648, which recognized the legitimacy of sovereign states. Those sovereign states competed and cooperated with each other, and today they do so in a framework largely developed by the United States since the Second World War. It's a framework of treaties, convention, rules, and norms. Many Chinese policymakers, however, believe that they are entitled to dominate others, especially those on their periphery. And this brings us to the second point, Xi Jinping's view of the international system. I think that he is trying to revolutionize that system by basing it on China's imperial era norms. The concept that, in, that was the foundation for China's imperial era was that nations near and far needed to acknowledge Chinese rule. In short, the Chinese emperors believed that they had the mandate of heaven over Tianxia, or all under heaven. They believed that they were predestined and ordered, and they were to predestined and ordered to rule and dominate the entire world. Now, unfortunately, Xi Jinping's ambitions, he harbors these ambitions of a Tianxia world. Of course, a dictatorial state naturally thinks of the world in dictatorial terms, and Tianxia, this mandate of heaven, is by its nature a top-down dictatorial system. Now, Xi Jinping himself has employed Tianxia language for more than a decade, but recently it has become unmistakable. Quote, the Chinese have always held that the world is united and all under heaven are one family. He declared this in his 2017 New Year's message. And if this weren't clear enough, he has had his subordinates go out and tell the world what he means. So for instance, in September 2017, his foreign minister, Wang Yi, wrote an article in Study Times which is the Central Party School's influential newspaper. And in that article, Wang Yi wrote that Xi Jinping thought, and Communist Party lingo, a thought is an important ideological body of work. Wang Yi wrote that Xi Jinping thought made innovations on and transcended Western international relations thinking of the past 300 years. Take 2017. Subtract 300 years, and you almost get to 1648, which means that Wang Yi's use of the word transcended means that Xi Jinping believes that there should be no sovereign states, or maybe just one sovereign state, China. So the trend of Xi Jinping's recent comments and the comments of others warn us that Xi Jinping does not accept the international system, that what he does not want to do is to live within it or reform it. What he wants to do is overthrow it altogether. And unfortunately, Xi Jinping 
not only spouts these Tinsiat-like statements, he employs dozens of scholars to study the application of Tinsiat to the world. And even worse than that, he acts like a Tinsiat, an imperial emperor. In December 2016, the Chinese Navy retrieved a U.S. Navy drone from the South China Sea in an area which was about 50 nautical miles west of the Philippines. This area was so far from China that it was outside China's infamous and absurd nine-dash line claim. And the Chinese retrieved this drone in the sight of the U.S. Navy craft that was trying to retrieve it. What the Chinese were saying is essentially that they are not bound by any rules of conduct. And Beijing thinks it can, with impunity, injure Americans. At the end of April of last year, in near their only offshore military base in Djibouti, they used a military-grade laser. They lasered a C American C-130 cargo plane, causing eye injuries to two pilots. Let's think about the severity of this. If you're trying to blind the pilots of a plane, you're trying to bring the plane down. If you're trying to bring the plane down, you are trying to kill the crew. What China was saying was that the U.S. had no right to operate anywhere in the world and that China could do anything it wanted anywhere. Moreover, we know that the Chinese used sonic attacks to cause brain injuries to American diplomats last spring at the consulate in Guangzhou. Beijing denied that it was behind the sonic attacks, but let's remember the Communist Party of China runs the most effective surveillance state in the world, and so their denial is hollow. They cannot say they don't know what goes on in their state. So either the Communist Party was a perpetrator of the attack or it was complicit in it. China's been called a trivial state, a state that is worried only about the perpetuation of the regime and the preservation of its borders. But I think that underestimates Chinese ambitions. Xi, with his broad challenge, is giving a disturbing context to what the Chinese are doing, and it shows that his intentions, like the intentions of Mao Zedong, excuse me, Mao Zedong in the early 1950s, are revolutionary. I think the Chinese challenge at this time is particularly acute. The question is, why? Well, because I think the Chinese leaders are starting to see a closing window of opportunity. And the window is closing for China because of adverse trends, such as severe environmental degradation, rising social protest, declining demography, and a crumbling economy. And because of all this, I think Xi Jinping believes he's probably running out of time. And that means he could move very aggressively in order to accomplish what he sees as China's historical obligations, or he could lash out to try to divert the attention of the Chinese people. But the one thing we do know is that Xi Jinping does believe that he is running out of time. And because he's running out of time, so is the United States of America. For decades, our China policy was misguided. It was misguided not because it was generous. Well, it was generous. But it was misguided not because it was generous, but because it emboldened 
the worst elements in the Chinese political system. It emboldened those worst elements because we showed everybody else in the Chinese capital that aggression, in fact, work. Consider the dynamic from early 2012. Early 2012, Chinese and Philippine vessels, basically fishing craft, were swarming around Scarborough Shoal. Scarborough Shoal is generally thought to be part of the Philippines. It's 124 nautical miles west of the main Philippine island of Luzon. And even though it's just a few rocks at high tide, it is considered extremely strategic because it guards the mouths to both Manila and Subic Bays. The Obama administration wanted to avoid a confrontation, so the State Department brokered a deal between Moscow, between Beijing and Manila, and we agreed to everybody withdraw their craft from Scarborough. Only the Philippines complied, and that has left China in control of Scarborough since then. Washington, however, did nothing to enforce the deal it had brokered. But by doing nothing, we did something. What we did was, again, we showed in Beijing that the Chinese could do whatever they wanted and the United States would not oppose them. So what did the Chinese leadership do? Did it return the gesture of friendship? No. It went out and made the problem bigger. It then started to ramp up pressure on another Philippine feature, Second Thomas Shoal, also in the South China Sea, and it started to go after the Senkaku Islands which are administered by Japan in the East China Sea. And if that weren't bad enough, the Chinese then started to reclaim those specks in the Spratlys, that archipelago in the southern portion of the South China Sea, which have now become those infamous, infamous military bases. So yeah, the Chinese are villains, but we have permitted them to be villainous. We've actually encouraged them to be villainous. We have forgotten every lesson of history. And that brings us back to Henry Kissinger. Quote, history knows no resting places and no plateaus. That's Kissinger because he was concerned when he saw the post-Cold War euphoria in the United States. So as history moves forward, one damn fact after another, we have to understand that we've got to fight for our society every day. After all, Ronald Reagan said, famously, freedom is no more than one generation away from extinction. It certainly looks in danger now. Forty years ago, we made the grandest wager in history. We bet that by cooperation and generous policies and all the rest of it, that we could reform and move in a better direction a militant communist superstate. We were wrong. We've got to change direction. And if we don't change direction, history is going to go in some very unsettling directions. It's already looking like it's going in one unsettling direction in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, most every night, there are clashes between two armies. One of them dressed in green in full riot gear. Of course, that's the police. The others are irregulars, mostly in black, and that's the youthful protesters. Why do we have clashes? We have clashes because Beijing has reneged on promises. In 1984, it signed the Sino-British Joint Declaration with Britain. That's a treaty. 
And in that treaty, Beijing promised 50 years of a high degree of autonomy to Hong Kong in the one country, two systems formula. Beijing, however, since 1997, when Beijing handed back, as they say, Hong Kong to China, China has been encroaching on that freedom and democracy. And China's attempt to prematurely seize control is the direct and primary result of all of the marches, the protests, and the disturbances that we've seen since April, especially since June. Now, the immediate cause of grievance was an extradition bill proposed by Carrie Lam, the Hong Kong chief executive, the chief political officer there. That extradition bill would have permitted Hong Kong to send back fugitives to China. The bill triggered opposition across Hong Kong society, and not just from the pan-democratic forces who would be counted on to oppose what Carrie Lam wanted to do. The bill also caused opposition among the, in the business community. The normally pro-Beijing business community was concerned that predatory Chinese, um, Chinese business partners would use that bill to force Hong Kong business people into the mainland where there is no justice, there is no rule of law. So this is the cause for what we're seeing today. I think also that the extradition bill on its own might not have been enough to trigger what we see today, but it came after a series of attempts by Beijing to take over Hong Kong. So now, even when Lam has said that she will permanently withdraw the extradition bill, that was the initial demand of protesters, even when she says she's going to permanently withdraw the bill, the protests have not stopped because those protests that we see today are not about extradition. They're about China. Society, we have seen, has shown an amazing unity. The dog that has not barked. We have not heard criticism from the mass of people in Hong Kong about the always rowdy, sometimes violent tactics of the protesters. So somewhere between, I guess, two-thirds and three-quarters of people in Hong Kong they support the protesters regardless what they do. And they support the protesters despite their tactics because they're much more concerned, people in Hong Kong, much more concerned about the intransigence of Carrie Lam, about the excessive force used by the Hong Kong police, and by the intrusive policies of Beijing. So Hong Kongers are fighting back. Why do we care? After all, they're on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Well, we Americans care because the same power that is encroaching upon Hong Kong autonomy and freedom is also attacking our society, is attacking our freedoms. So the people in Hong Kong, yeah, they need us. We know they need us. We saw two Sundays ago, a thousand American flags at a rally in Hong Kong at the US consulate. So the people in Hong Kong, they need us, but we need them. As Chin Chong, a former um, pro-Beijing journalist who was jailed by China, now just a journalist, as Chin Chong said to me earlier this month, he said, what's going on in Hong Kong today is a warning to America. So the people in Hong Kong are fighting for their homes. And if we ignore their warnings, we too will be fighting for our homes because Hong Kong 
is the front line of freedom. Thank you.